0: Well, um, we're going to talk a little bit today about cultivating a gospel culture in your home. Culture's a funny thing. When We talk about culture. Uh, We we tend to talk about it at large, right, the culture of our country or whatever. And and culture is really uh, just to kind of Sum up. It's kind of it's it's a collective set of values, mission, beliefs, priorities that create basically the vibe, the feel you get in a place among a people. Okay, so every organization, every country, every team, um, every company, every family, ha- every church has a culture, and it's 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 that collective embodiment. And um, we uh, were at Disney a while back. I think it was actually about a year or so ago at Disney World, one of the parks. And it, for some reason, I'd always noticed, but it began to strike me just how clean that place is. And because I was just thinking, you know, like millions of people come through this place. I mean, this is just <laughs> crazy. And you look around; and it's like hard to find trash or gum. And I'm like, there's kids everywhere, right? It's like, I mean, I would—I I don't know how just my own three are not contributing to, to the mess. But I, you look around, and it's just like it's spotless, it's clean, and to the point that it, it's like so clean there most of the time that if I pull something out of my pocket and a receipt or a gum wrapper or something goes flying away, I'll probably chase it over five parks just to locate it because it's like I feel bad if I contribute to the mess because it's so clean there, right? That's culture, okay? So there is uh, such a culture, I guess you would say, of excellence and things of that nature there that, man, they cleanliness so much that, I mean, it even affects the customers that you're just less sloppy when you're there uh, than you would be at a lot of parks or a lot of outdoor things like that. None of us want to be litter bugs, but, I mean, it's like on hyper-overdrive when you're at Disney World. In fact... You know, they say culture begins at the top and flows down. And it wasn't long ago that we were at Disney World, and we saw the top guy. I got a picture this morning. He was even picking up stuff off the ground. You got the picture up there on the screen? That's Mickey Mouse um, picking up uh, my kid's um, goldfish. And so we contributed to the mess. We were picking it up. Mickey Mouse decided that. So, I mean, top down, right, all the way from the mouse down, they are committed. That is culture. That's how culture works, and a great picture of that. And the famed educator and business management consultant, Peter Drucker, famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast, okay? And so culture, the collective corporate feel, values, beliefs, mission, philosophy of a group, not what simply is written on a page, but what is actually held in the heart and practice. It's more than what you do. It's why you do it, right? It's it's, it's that. It's what you embody. And your family this morning and my family, we have a culture. You've got a vibe that you put off in your home. You've got a feel that you put off in your home because you're a collective group of people, whether it's just you and your husband, or whether it's you and your husband and kids, or just you and your kids. You, you've, you've got a vibe. You've got a feel. You've got a culture. Let me ask you this morning, what is your family's culture? Because if I can echo Peter Drucker, I want to say I can promise you it's eating your strategy for breakfast every single day. Some families have the culture of performance or security or comfort or greed. Or a culture that's kid-centered, or dad-centered, or mom-centered, or parent-centered. Your culture can be a lot of things. What is the primary thing that is shaping your values and shaping your kids' values? What are your kids seeing and feeling, for instance, if, you, if you've got children in the home, uh, that, that really are, is outshining everything else no matter what you say? You can have a strategy in your family. You can have a plan for your kids, for instance. You can have a schedule, a savings account, a plan for their future, But the culture of your family is going to do more to determine what kind of kids you raise and what kind of impact you have on your neighbors and things of that nature than any kind of strategy that we can ever write out. Because it ultimately is shaped from and comes from who we are. For the Christian family, we should be striving for a gospel culture. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done and all that entails and points to and explains, should shape and mold... Everything about who we are and therefore everything in our homes, if you're a believer today. So what do I mean by gospel culture? By that I mean this. Our culture of our families should say two things. We believe the gospel and you should too. It, It should say we believe the gospel. Our family culture should make it very clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, the Son of God who has bled and died for our sins and who has risen from the dead and we're only saved by his grace through faith in him, that very gospel should permeate everything about us and everything, and it. we should also at the same time, not only should, it, should our culture and our home say we believe that, it should make a compelling case for others to consider the claims of Christ and his gospel as well. That's living out our faith in the home. It's really simple. And this morning, I want to share how we can better cultivate a gospel, a gospel culture in our home. We're going to look at a lot of texts this morning. It's a little different than normal. This is probably the most different message that I've preached here in nearly six years of being here. And um, so I'm kind of breaking all of my rules for preaching today. And um, so it's it's okay. So we have a steady diet of going through passages and chapters and books. And today we're going to cheat on our diet. And, um, and, and we're going to do things a little bit different. So... I want to start in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Do not try to turn everywhere I'm going to turn today. You will not keep up. So we've got several <laughs> scriptures that we're going to fly through this morning. We're not going to dive deeply into any of them. We're going to kind of see an overview here of how the gospel shapes us, what's true about the gospel, and how that and then specifically how that applies to our home life. So we'll start in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, a very famous verse written by the Apostle Paul, and many of our verses today we're taking from Romans as we're going to kind of get that. It's the book that really just, man, shines a light on the clarity of the gospel and makes a very clear case for what the gospel is and how it should impact and change our lives. So Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The word there for power is the Greek word dunamis. It means dynamite. That's the kind of power that is packed in the gospel, right? Explosive power. The power of God, he even says. The gospel can change lives, right? it they got the power of God within it to save our souls, to change our lives. And as it does that, it can shape our cultures. It's our hope. And the power, that powerful gospel should be the message of our lives, the message our lives are centered on, and it should shape everything about us. That's how powerful the gospel is. is we believe in it, we're not ashamed in it, we hold to it. In fact, over in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear um, how exactly uh, important the gospel is. When you read the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul begins the book around chapter 2 by telling them he knew nothing among them except Christ and Him crucified. Right? That was, he's saying, this is, all my teaching is centered here. And then in chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, he says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. So in 1 Corinthians, both the end of the letter and the beginning, Apostle Paul makes it clear. The gospel was at the center of his teaching and what they were to believe and hold to. It was the defining message, right? He says, this is what you've received. It's what you stand in. It's what you're being being saved by. Not just have been, but being saved by. We've said this quote before, but Tim Keller has said it well, that the gospel is not simply the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. It's of first importance. And all the Apostle Paul taught flowed from that gospel. And all the Old Testament flowed toward that gospel. Now think... Of that, in context of the family, as we seek to have homes that honor the Lord, to disciple kids, to point our neighbors to the Lord, the gospel should be central in our homes. It's it's the, the core message of the Bible, both the Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, in those both both whether you go to the Old Testament or the New Testament, parents were taught, for instance, to be teaching their children God's truth, and all of that was pointing toward and, and back to and, and bathed in gospel truth. In the Old Testament, for instance, a very popular passage is Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9 in the Shema. And the, as, as God is giving the law here, he says, after he tells them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, he says this uh, through Moses, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk, by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Sounds like he's saying more than have a quiet time. Sounds like he's saying more than have a, a family devotional time. All good things. He's saying, man, this is to permeate the what? The culture of your home. The culture of your home is to be, when you sit down, when you rise up, when they go to bed, when they wake up, as you go, man, it's, it should just permeate. You should constantly be inundating them with the truth of my word. And all of, the old, all of that, the law, for instance, that he was giving here was fulfilled in who? In Christ. And what did the law ultimately do? It showed us that we, for instance, can't save ourselves. We need The gospel, right? And then in the Old Testament, you've got all the sacrifices and all that. That was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that would come in Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, it is riddled with with shadows and images to point us to Jesus and His gospel. And then you get to the New Testament in Ephesians 6, 4. We read last week, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We said last week that meant to nurture nurture them to, to maturity in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Christ and his gospel is all that flows to and from, right? It's of the Lord. So if we're going to raise kids that love God, we need gospel culture in our home. It should, the gospel needs to inundate every part of what we do and who we are. And we need the gospel to shape our values and our beliefs and our behaviors, our traditions, our priorities, our habits, because that's what makes up our culture. And that's how we get to a gospel culture. And this will say to people, hey, we believe the gospel, And you should too. And it creates an environment where your children, if you have children still in the home, can hear the gospel with fewer stumbling blocks. It provides a clearer path. We can't save our kids. I can't save my three children. And you can't save yours if you've got children in the home or out of the home that do not know the Lord yet. You can't save them. But what we can do is we can clear the path as much as possible so that we, our behavior or our parenting style or um, anything else does not become a hindrance in any way. And if you don't have kids, it's bigger than that. This this is compelling for your neighbors and your extended family members and your mom and dad and your brother and sister and all the people that you do family with. This is evangelistic living, okay, at its best. So here are five practices for cultivating a gospel culture in your home that we're going to look at, okay? Five practices for cultivating a gospel culture in your home. I've been meditating on this for about two weeks. And really all I'm doing here is I'm pulling all this from just This is just from meditating on the gospel and the truths of the gospel, and we're going to walk through some scripture together. Number one, the first practice for cultivating a gospel culture in your home, orient your home around the supremacy of God. We need to orient our home or orient your life around the supremacy of God. The gospel is about God. When you believe the gospel, you stand in it, right? You're being saved by the apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, and when you have been crucified with Christ, as Galatians talks about, you will recognize and you will exalt in, right, the supremacy of God. Your life will become increasingly God-centered as Jesus is Lord of your life. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. I told you we'd be in Romans a lot. The Apostle Paul says, For his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world into things that have been made so they are without excuse. Here's what I want you to notice out of this passage. Paul's explaining here, Just the supremacy of God, his creative power, and and he's really setting up to explain just how sinful humanity really is. But he says the invisible attributes, mainly his eternal power and divine nature, right? Just the godness of God is on display in creation. His supremacy, his power, his divine nature. Towards the end of the book of Romans, in Romans 11, verses 36 through chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this, For from him, from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So he's just kind of going on a little worship tangent there. From God and through God and to God are all things. He is, he is supreme. Everything finds its meaning in him. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then he goes into this very popular passage. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. All of your life, all of your body, and all of your life is to be presented to God in worship, is to be centered on God, is to be oriented around His supremacy because we are seeking to give Him glory in all things. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things, and believers are people that know that. So at the beginning of Romans, Paul tells them, listen, God's godness is on full display, yet humanity has ignored Him and rebelled. As he progresses through the gospel... And its implications, he begins to tell them as believers in the gospel, this is how you're supposed to live, and I want you to see God's glorious, and you know it, and so he's urging them in chapter 12, verse 1, live for his glory. Worship him with all of your life. Now, the Christian home should be a place where God is worshipped, honored, and lived for, treasured, adored, where his supremacy is recognized and submitted to. Does this mean you pray over your meals? Does this mean you have family devotional time? Of course it does. Man, it needs so much more than that. You can pray over your meals and you can have family devotional time and you can ignore the supremacy of God in your family. This means that all of our priorities are to be shaped by God. He's at the center of our home's universe. And this will show up in how we talk about God in our home. And that we talk about God in our home. It'll show up in how we don't talk about God in our home and how we don't use his name in our home. It'll show up in what we make time for. And what we're willing to cut time from to make time for what's important. And how we spend the money God gives us because we recognize he is supreme and he owns everything, including us. And what is ours, our time and our money and our energy. So if we get real practical, this means we're likely going to miss some things, right? We miss out on some things because we've prioritized some other things. Because God is supreme, because we have been reconciled to him through the gospel, and we see him as for who he really is. And while the rest of the world ignores, we are worshiping God. So we're likely going to miss some other things as we prioritize things that are important to God. We'll miss some things on Sundays because we take our family to church with God's people as a general pattern, as a general rule. As God's word teaches, that should be a priority, Hebrews chapter 10. We may miss some birthday parties and some brunches because they had it on Sunday. And Sundays are the Lord's day, the day we gather with our church family. We can't have a family culture of giving leftovers to God and expect to raise children that will love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Man, that might be your strategy, but your culture is going to eat it for breakfast. If we raise our children in a home where God is secondary or tertiary or somewhere else and not primary and not a priority and is not treated as supreme in our home, we can't expect to raise children that are going to treat Him as supreme in their heart. Because no matter what we've said, we've taught them differently by what we did. So we need to pursue God individually, and we need to celebrate Him collectively. Let me ask you, what makes sin so bad? What makes it so bad? It's so bad because it's against God. Sin is sin because God is God. If God, weren't God were not God, sin would not be sin as much as it is. We've said this before, you sin against a rock, you haven't done very much. You sin against the dog, you've done more. You sin against the person, you've done even more. And you sin against God, you've done something infinitely evil. Because he's God, he's perfect, he's holy. And if we don't take God serious in our home, we should not be shocked one day when our kids do not take sin serious. That's the truth. So how supreme, how great does God look to our kids according to how we spend our time, how we talk about God, how we use our talents, how we spend and give our money, how we order our lives, who's the priority in our home? Is it the kids? Is it my work? Is it my comfort? Is it the parents? Is it fun? Is it family? Or is it it God? So we need to orient our lives around the supremacy of God. Number two, second priority, we need to acknowledge the beauty and brokenness of creation. We need to acknowledge the beauty and the brokenness of creation. Let me read to you a little more lengthy passage. Pick up where we left off in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. And we're going to read down through verse 25. After he says about how all of his divine power is on display in creation. Let me skip on down to verse 21. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God has shown his power in the beauty, order, and usefulness and enjoyability of creation, right? He's, he tells us that in Romans 1.20. We read that just a few minutes ago. His power, his godness, is on display in the creative order. In Genesis, when God creates the creation, what does he say? He says, it is good. At the same time, a couple chapters later, Genesis 3 teaches us there is a fall. And Paul's pointing that out here in Romans chapter 1. Man has become sinful and there is a curse. And creation is bearing that with us. And it is groaning, Romans 8 tells us, underneath that curse. The rest of the passage shows us there in Romans 1 that people have not honored God. While He can clearly be seen in His creation, people are sinful and have done sinful things and continue to do so. And so there's a tension. And the tension is this. Creation is good and it declares to us the glory of God. And at the same time, creation is broken because of the fall. The sun rises gorgeous and declares to us the glory of God, yet you stare at the sun and you will lose your sight. The beauty of the snowfall is glorious and peaceful, pointing us heavenward, and yet you get trapped in it and you can freeze to death. Because God's creation is good, and at the same time our creation, we are fallen, we're broken people in a broken world. The gospel teaches us that the creation has a goodness that points us to God and His beauty, And we are to enjoy Him and so forth and yet it's broken and there is sickness and death and pain and suffering due to sin. And in fact, the pinnacle of God's creation is man. And we are created in His image, the Bible tells us, and yet we are fallen and sinful and broken. A gospel culture will have a gospel-shaped worldview that will look to enjoy and steward well God's creation because we know God made it and it's good and it points us to Him and we will at the same time seek to do that. We we'll we'll understand that there's theology behind that, right? So when we play in the yard or go on a hike, there's theology in that because all of that points us as we enjoy God's creation. It's meant to point us to Him and to worship Him, not the creation. At the same time, we must teach the world as a scary place with real monsters that will hurt you. We can't lie to our kids. This ain't heaven. Kids pick up fast that this world is broken and messed up. A while back, we were driving down the street on the way to the church or something. Cannon was with me. It was just me and him. And there was a man on the side of the road asking for money there at the red line, as we see all over Central Florida. Cannon wants to go, What's he doing? Why isn't he at his house? He begins to ask me hard questions that I don't know how to explain to a five year old necessarily. How do you explain that? You just do. You just do, to the level that they can understand it. You just talk to them honestly and say, well, you know, this, sometimes bad things happen in this world. Sometimes bad things happen to people. Sometimes people do bad things. Sometimes we sin, sometimes we're sinned against. And in all of this, there's brokenness. And, and sometimes people end up in difficult places in life. And everybody doesn't have a house. And that's unfortunate. And we just talk about the brokenness of this world. As Sally Lloyd-Jones, famous children's, Christian children's author says, uh, heard her speak at a parenting conference last year, and she said, you know, you you can't avoid telling your kids the scary truth because they know that the world is a scary place. Think about this. If all this is true, and the world's broken and sinful and all this, are you shocked when your children sin? When your spouse sins? When you sin? You shouldn't be shocked by sin. We are broken. Right? We sin. We need Jesus. We need to be reconciled to God. And we shouldn't betray the gospel by acting like our kids shouldn't need it. Raising little sinners, right, that need saving. And they're not always, as I'm learning, they're not always going to obey, much to my chagrin. They are little sinners. And we shouldn't be shocked by their sin. Instead of, I can't believe that. I can believe, I I, I, I can believe that, is what we should be saying. I can believe it, son, you're a sinner like your daddy. It has consequences, but God loves you and he wants to help. Your kid needs to know the world is broken and they also need to know that they're broken, that they are a sinner. And if we act like our kids don't need a savior, we shouldn't be shocked that they never see their need for one. Talk honestly about sin and its effects. Enjoy the beauty of creation with your family, and at the same time, talk about its brokenness. That's the second principle. The third principle is we need to value, love, and serve others. We need a culture of valuing and loving and serving others in our home. When you get to Romans chapter 12, I mentioned verse 1 is like a, is like a pendulum that the, that the book swings on, where he's going from really explaining the gospel and all its great theology to like practically living in light of it. And down around verse 10, he's explaining really the the culture of the church. And and he's talking a lot about the implications of gospel culture in the church. And he says in chapter 12, verse 10, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Right? It's it's, after talking about our worship of God with our life in Romans 12, 1, he's moving to how we relate to other people. Love and brotherly affection, outdoing and showing honor. Supposed to do that in the church. Shouldn't we do it in our home too? We're not, we're not supposed to do less in our home than we do in our church, right? And all this is the opposite of selfishness, right? If you value, love, and serve others, man, that, just, that grates against a self-centered lifestyle. You, you can't value, love, and serve others well and at the same time be self-serving and selfish and self-centered. It just doesn't work that way. The gospel changes how we relate to other people. We begin to see them and treat them more like Christ does. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 to 21, the apostle John writes... We love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, not, who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Right? Our love for God shows up in how we treat people and how we love one another, and particularly how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But how we love people. The gospel teaches us that God loves people to the point that He what? He sent His Son to die for them. It also teaches us that the very Son of God was willing to lay down His life for others, selflessly giving of Himself to save people who had nothing to offer Him, willingly dying in our place. We can't believe that message and it not affect how we treat others, right? And at the same time, this says not only I believe the gospel, but when we live this way, it says to others You should, too. Right? An environment where people are honored and served and valued is attractive. It's attractive. All through the New Testament, the Bible calls God's people to be a community that values, serves, and puts others' needs ahead of our own. And Jesus himself commanded us to pray for what? Even our enemies. So how we value and therefore treat others is a powerful tool in the hands of God. Practically, How do we speak to and how do we speak about each other in our homes? These are just questions for us to ponder. How do our kids hear us talk about others that are not in our homes? Are we teaching them to value and serve others, to love people, or to gossip and slander and bicker about people? We must be teaching our children not to treat people like objects and not to use people and constantly reminding them that they and others are valued and loved by God because of that. And because of that, we should value and love and serve others as well. Because God values and loves others. Because Christ came not to be served, but to serve. We too should value and love others, and we too should seek to serve others because we have been valued and we have been loved. That's that's the bottom line, to be sure to have habits and practices in our home that reinforce the value of others versus living for ourselves. And you can think creatively about that in your own home. How do we do that? How do we practice that? But it's a value that needs to be there because it points them to the gospel and shows them the power of it in your life. Fourth. Fourth principle. We need to rest in and exemplify the grace of God. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.8.9, right? You are saved by grace. It's not of yourself so that no one could boast. We're saved by grace. Christ Jesus died for us, and we are redeemed through him. That's grace, right? Not so what we did, but what he has done. We bring our sin to salvation. That's all we bring. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved. And then he goes on in Ephesians 2 to talk about the good works and all that, but it flows from a heart that has been transformed by grace, and that begins to change what we do. We're not saved by our doing but by our resting in what's been done. So here's the question. As believers in Christ, we believe that. But functionally, does it look like it? The end game is we want our kids and our neighbors and our extended family to know the grace of God and to rest in the grace of God as we have come to do. And we need to make sure we are creating a culture that shows them we are resting in God's grace. And that can't happen if our work, for instance, looks looks like our functional Savior. If it looks like what I'm resting in to give me peace, to make me right with God, to give me meaning is work, and what I do for a living, then that's not gospel culture, and it's not pointing people to grace. I'm teaching my kids, work saves. Rest in your work. If my parenting looks like my Savior, if it looks as though I'm resting in my performance as a dad or as a mom, then I'm not preaching grace to my children. If my kids look like my Savior, if their performance and their behavior, if that's the be-all, end-all of what brings me fulfillment makes me happy and makes me feel the most peace with God, I'm not preaching grace to my children. Get the point? We need to be clear that we are resting in grace, not in ourselves, and that needs to show up in what we're not resting in for our identity and for our worth. But we also need to exemplify grace. We need to give our kids a taste of grace and home. In our discipline, for instance. That doesn't mean we don't discipline. I heard a Bible teacher say recently that if our idea of showing grace to our kids is not disciplining them, then we're lying to them about grace. Grace is not the ignoring of sin, right? As he rightly noted. Every sin that's ever been committed gets punished. There's no sin that's ever been committed in the history of the world that has not been or will not be punished by God Almighty. It either gets punished as he pours out his wrath On the sinner in hell, or it's been punished in Christ on the cross. Somebody bears the punishment for the sin. So grace is not. We'll show you grace. That's not. Go on about it. No, 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 no. That's not grace. We show grace in the tone of our discipline. We show grace, in fact, in the fact that we do discipline in love. So we discipline our child, but as we do, we talk to them about the consequences of sin and how Christ loves them so much that he bore the ultimate price for them. But we also need to exemplify grace in our forgiveness, that we extend to family members and to one another in the family and towards our children and the kindness we show one another. In Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. As we've experienced that in God's grace, as we've experienced the forgiveness of God, as Christ has forgiven us, we show kindness, we show forgiveness, we show tenderheartedness towards others. If you want a gospel culture in your home, you must exemplify the grace you've experienced by forgiving and showing kindness like Christ has showed you, by being tenderhearted towards others as Christ is tenderhearted towards you. We don't want to be the parent. We don't want to be the spouse or the friend who holds a grudge. And don't let your kids do that either, as much as it depends on you. Teach them to accept an apology and move on, to extend forgiveness and show them how to do that. Ask yourself, in what way can I, in what way can we better practice forgiveness so that others like my kids can be a, get a better picture of the forgiveness of Christ that I have experienced? How can I do that in my life? How can I do that in my home? How can I prepare to do that in a home if I'm single, if I'm going to be married one day? How can I do this? How can I begin to practice this now? In our generosity, we need to exemplify grace. The motive of our generosity is God's generosity towards us. God so loved the world, He gave. We have experienced that generosity, so we give. In God's grace, He was generous to us, and when that is experienced, it produces a generous heart. The reason so many people are so stingy is because they have not radically experienced the generosity of God in their lives. It is. When when churches are filled with people, who haven't genuinely experienced the grace and generosity of God, it will be a stingy church. When families are filled with stingy people who have not experienced the generosity of God, it will be a a, a stingy family. And I don't just mean financially. In terms of how do we treat others with generosity in the sense in which we give of ourself and of our time and of our energy because we've experienced that. do we show that we've experienced the gracious generosity of God? So we need to rest in and exemplify the grace of God. Here's the final. Number five. We need to demonstrate and encourage repentance, confession, and faith. We need to demonstrate and encourage repentance, confession, and faith. Romans 2.4. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now we picked up in the middle of the fall. Paul's calling out the people who are who are kind of assuming on the grace of God, and the kindness of God. The kind of attitude that says, well, God will forgive me, so I'll just do whatever, right? God loves me, so I'll just do it. Or the kind of attitude that just, that just kind of doesn't take sin serious because it ha- it's not being punished right now. He says, don't you know that God's kindness towards you is meant to lead you to repentance? That the whole motive behind God, kind, it's... When we view the kindness of God in our lives, it's meant to cause us to repent. In 2 Peter 3.9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right? God wants people to repent. Paul, does, Paul told those who presumed on kindness of God, God's kindness that it was meant to lead them to repentance, turning from sin to God. Peter says it's God's desire. He's patient because he doesn't want people to perish but to repent. And as those who have repented of our sin, if you're in Christ today, if you're a believer, it's because at some point you didn't presume on God's grace. At some point God's grace gripped your heart and you turned from your sin and you embraced Christ, right? You repented of your sin. You turned from it and embraced Christ. And we need to demonstrate that in our lives. Because repentance is not a one-time thing. It's, it's for life. It's ongoing. It's a continuous process. We turn from sin to God and we continue in that posture throughout our lives. And when we sin, we, we quickly turn from it and turn to God. Our kids need to know that we know that we're sinners. They know you're a sinner. Okay? <laughs> they know I'm a sinner. They see it. Okay? They live in it. They need to know that you know it. The Pharisees didn't seem to know that they were sinners. Did not create a healthy religious culture in that day created a culture that when Jesus showed up, they killed him. Self-righteous, hypocritical culture in the home that doesn't treat sin as sin is not creating a culture where Jesus is going to be more likely to be accepted and received. Listen, like I said, we can't can't save our children, but we can prevent as much as possible from putting stumbling blocks in their path. And one of the ways we can do that is to acknowledge and admit when we sin and for them to see us repent of our sin. That means they need to hear us admit it when we mess up. And if we sin against them, we need to admit it and ask their forgiveness. We need to confess it to them. Repentance and confession. We need to show them how to truly repent. Show them how to confess sin. 1 John 1.8 If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Now we need to live that out and let them see that that is true. And when the Bible talks about living at peace with all as much as it depends on you, that includes your kids and your spouse, your family. If you wrong them, make it right. Repent. And part of that is making it right with them. We also need to encourage their repentance. We need to encourage their repentance. Teach them that their sin is against God, and that is a bigger deal than their sin against you. Don't let the be-all, end-all be that they've offended you or me, but that they've offended God. Make sure they know when they sin that it's against Him. Encourage them to turn from it, to practice repentance, to practice confession, even before they get it or understand it. When they sin against others, like a sibling or a parent or another friend, have them apologize and make it right. Practice that. See, we're in an environment where we show how to deal with sin, how to take it serious, how to turn from it, how to get right with God and with others. We need to practice repentance and confession. But we also need to demonstrate and encourage faith. Romans 3, 24-26, We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Who does God justify? The one who has faith in Jesus. We're saved by grace, but we're saved through faith. And God's grace is not effective in our lives until we receive it by faith, right? God's grace changes you when you believe. When you put your faith in Christ. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. To rest in, to rely in. Faith. And we need to demonstrate our faith. Our children need to see we're trusting in Christ. Not just in the ways we talked earlier with with grace. But they need to hear it in our prayers and hear it from our lips. I remember seeing my dad when I was 16. Get down on his knees in the pastor's office. And pray to ask Jesus to save me. Still remember. A lot of things I don't remember about being 16. It's weird how that happens. I remember that. When our, we, they need to see our faith. Now obviously, that was the first time it showed up in his life. When we're trusting Christ to save us, we walk by faith, though, in all of life. We don't just trust him with our eternity, we trust him with our life. And one of the best ways to demonstrate faith is to let your kids see you live. By faith. By trusting God. To see you trusting Christ, not only to save you, but to lead you. To see you trusting Him with your career. Trusting you with the home, with with the finances, and and with with everything. With with the the, the disorder that comes into life, and the pain that comes into life, and the suffering that comes into life. As they get older, we involve them in big decisions by letting them see how we trust Christ through the home purchase, or through the move, or through the job change, or through the difficult health season, or through losing a loved one. Or losing a job, we, we show them that we live by faith. That we're trusting in something outside of ourselves. And as those who live by faith, we should be willing to risk all for the sake of following and obeying Christ and letting our kids see that we live a life of bold faith. We're not calling them to something we're not living. So we do that and we encourage their faith. Every step they take towards Jesus, we celebrate. Every step they take towards Jesus, we celebrate. We go slow with them, but we don't hinder their coming to faith in Jesus. And we allow them to come to Jesus, and we encourage their faith as they go. Now, here's the thing. We drank from a fire hydrant this morning. Tons of verses. Tons of points. Like I said, it's unusual. But they're on the screen, so you can write them down and things like that, and we can get that information to you. But, man, here's one thing we can do with this. We can make these prayer points around our home. We... We can ask God to show us individually what this should look like in our home. These things should be there. It's gospel truth. But how does it look like from home to home? And what are some practices that we can employ that will help us cultivate that? These are the principles, right? These are the things that need to be there. We need to do this, but what are some tangible ways that we can work that out? Begin to make that a matter of prayer in your home. But let me say this. You can't have a gospel culture in your home, whether you're single or married, have kids, don't have kids, kids are gone, whatever. Unless the gospel's changed your heart. Unless you can say with Paul, the apostle, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation because you've experienced that. Then it won't change. It it just won't. It's not going to permeate your home if it hasn't permeated your heart. So the first question we have to ask this morning is, has the gospel changed your heart? Have you turned from your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ who died in your place and rose again? Are you trusting in something other than Jesus? Not what what we write down on a sheet of paper, what do we say? But functionally, are are we really resting in Christ today? Is he really our all? And then believer, believer, what are the ways that you can practically begin and continue to practice these things? Many of these things we practice instinctively is because we're believers, but all of them can be sharpened and it's been convicting for me. I hope it's convicting for all of us and I hope we all will make it a matter of prayer as we seek to build a gospel culture in our home. We can't have a gospel culture in the church. Without a gospel culture in our homes we bring our culture in right and then as god changes us and changes our hearts it will begin to also change homes and families in our community in our neighborhoods in our city as the gospel impacts from heart